So first of all, if you would like to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Today, this morning, I thought we'd look at the verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Because these are a few of my favorite verses in Scripture, which I think I referred to last time I was uh, had to talk. And I don't know, I just felt the Lord pressing my heart that this is the portion what you want me to speak about because all of these verses just speak of the rich and many blessings what we have from God in Christ. And that last song is like, give thanks. It's like when you read through these verses, you realize there's so much we've got to be thankful for, for what the Lord God has done, to, done for us through Christ Jesus. So we're going to go through these uh, few verses, verse 3 to 14, and we're going to look at these rich and amazing blessings, what we have from God in Christ Jesus. So we'll start off in verse 3, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. For me, verse 3, Paul is setting out our state of mind, what it should be like when we're going through the next few verses. It's because we have got many blessings from God the Father here on earth, what we enjoy here. We have roofs over our heads. We have food on our tables, jobs to earn our keep. We have lots of other blessings, what we enjoy here on earth. But yet these blessings, even though they are necessary and good, there are greater blessings than these. There are blessings which only come from the heavenly places, which can only be found in Christ. Blessings such as salvation, blessings such as grace, blessings such as assurance of salvation as well. All of these can only come from God the Father in heaven, and only can they be found in Christ. Because it is only through knowing Christ as your Lord and Saviour that you can know these blessings. Without Christ, you won't know these blessings because they can only be found in Christ Jesus. So before we go and look at these blessings, I just want to say for now that the mindsets we should have, what Paul's trying to get us to have here, is first of all, is that of um, worship. Because Paul is trying to stir up our hearts of worship to worship God for the rich blessings what comes from God in Christ. So that should be the first thing we uh, think at the forefront of our mind when we go through these blessings, that this is meant to stir up our worship inside of us. And the second one is that focus of the heavenly places. These blessings from God the Father in Christ Jesus are there to get us to not have a, you know, not to bring us down here on earth, but to basically make our focus up in heaven where the very throne room of God is. That's the focus what we should have when we go through these blessings. So the first blessing is a great blessing and also some would say a bit, of a, con- a bit of a difficult one to get your head around. And that is found in verse 4 to 5. And that blessing is the blessing through election and predestination. So let's read verse 4 and 5. It says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure 
of his will. So first of all, I just want to say I know that for some people, when they hear the words of election and predestination, they may switch off. They may think, hang on a second, I'm not sure about that. You know, I don't like the idea of predestination and election. Um, and the main reason for that thinking is because of they know people close to him aren't saved. They've got loved ones who aren't saved. And truth be told, that's kind of me. I've got loved ones in my family who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And it's hard to think, how can a God of love choose me, but yet not choose that family member who is so close and dear to us, whether it be like a father or a brother or a sister or, or a spouse? It is hard to think, it's like, well, why am I chosen, but not them? And first of all, what we've got to think is, well, what does the Bible actually say? Because at the end of the day, whatever the Bible says, that's what we've got to believe. After all, 2 Timothy 2, verse three sixteen, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And if all Scripture, that means every single word in our Bibles is God's word. That's what he's spoken to us. So we know that every single word is true and should be believed. And the Bible has a lot to say about election and predestination. In John, Jesus says in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 16, he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should be, go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. In Romans eight twenty-nine, uh, Paul says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And Peter, in Peter chapter 1 and First Peter chapter 2, he says, Election according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. And chapter 2 says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, holy nation, his own special people, that ye may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So these verses clearly state that we are chosen in God and we are predestined by him. The Bible is very clear about that. And if you think about those verses, when it does talk about choosing and predestination, it's always in a positive sense. Is always speaking of a blessing to us. It's always meant to be an encouragement to us, meaning that the idea of predestination and election shouldn't be a heavy burden of our hearts, but should be stirring up hearts of worship and praise for God actually choosing us and blessing us through that. But yet at the same time, when talking about election and predestination, we can't ignore other verses in the Bible. Verses like John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever should believe shall not perish and have everlasting life. Uh, John five twenty four. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In Titus 2, verse 11. For grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. In Romans 10, uh, verse 9 to 10, But if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is your heart 
that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So the Bible also teaches that salvation is open to all man, and that God isn't willing that none should perish, but all should be saved. And in these verses, it doesn't actually single out anyone. It says that anyone can believe. So it doesn't actually show that some are chosen and some are not chosen. So this is now pretty confusing. The Bible teaches that God chooses and that people are elected and predestined. And the Bible also teaches that God has allowed salvation to be open to everyone. We seem quite contrary to each other, these theologies. You wonder, well, surely, you know, one must be right and one must be wrong. But both are right, because both are in the Bible. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16. Both must be right, that salvation is open to all, but at the same time, God chooses and predestines. And you'll be wondering, well, how does that work together? And truth be told, I can try and give you an answer to how they both coexist together, but I probably won't do any justice. Truth be told, I can't tell you how they both marry up together. Because at the end of the day, the Bible also says in Isaiah 55, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Truth is, I don't need to know how God knits together the idea of election, predestination, and salvation open to all, because his ways are bigger than my ways, and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I don't need to understand how God works those two together, but yet all I need to know is that he does. I need, all I need to know is that God has chosen me and predestined me, and yet he has made salvation open to all that all can be saved. And at the end of the day, when talking about election predestination, we've got to remember the principle Paul set out in the first few verses. That when you think about election predestination, that we should be stirring our hearts for worshipping God, for choosing us, for predestining us. And the fact that the idea of election predestination should point us in the focus, in the heavenly places, and point us to just looking to God in all and glory and worshipping him. So, what are we chosen for after clarifying or not clarifying predestination and election? In verse 4, it says we are chosen. But what are you chosen for? We are chosen before the foundation of the world. So it means that before the world was, God looked upon you and me and looked past our sinfulness, both all the sins we previously committed and future commit. He looked past that and longed and desired each and every single one of us and chose to call us child. So God chose us before the foundation of the world, but he chose us to be holy, without blame, spotless. In this present world, what we live in, in this present form and body, I know that I can never be truly holy and without blame and spot. I know that this body is full of sin and corruption and that uh, how can this body ever be blameless and spotless and holy? But I can't. But one day, I will be. Because one day, when we get all get to heaven, 
when we stand before the Almighty God and he looks upon us, he won't see that sinful person, what we once were here on earth. And he looks upon us, he'll see his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And when he looks at his son, he looks at the righteousness and holiness and blamelessness of his son, Jesus Christ. And when he sees that purity and holiness in his son, we will be then accepted by the Father. Because Jesus will say, this one's mine. And the Lord said, because he's yours, he is mine. We are chosen by God. And verse 5 says that we are adopted. We're adopted as a son or both by Jesus Christ to himself according to God's good pleasure. And as a father myself, when I look at my two monster of little boys, I just can't help but love him unconditionally, passionately. My heart is filled with love for them too. But yet, God has adopted us. We're not even his natural born sons or daughters, but we are adopted children of God. And yet, even adopted, he treats us as his own. He loves us as his own. And with the adoption, uh, it's kind of an idea of that we've been adopted, not as children, but more as an adult. Because as children, they had, when they became adopted, they still didn't have any of the, uh, the rights as a full-grown heir of the uh, person who's just adopted them. They had to wait for maturity. But here... The idea of adoption is that we've been adopted as almost full-grown adults and we've already received the promise and heir, what we get from our adopted father because we are already blessed with salvation here on earth. Yep, our heir of the kingdom of God and our inheritance of eternal life are still waiting for us in heaven, but yet we can still hold on to what the Lord has given us here on earth through salvation. I like what Barclay said concerning adoption. He said, when the adoption was complete, it was complete indeed. The person who had been adopted had all the rights of legitimate son in his new family and completely lost all rights in his old family. In the eyes of the law, he was a new person. So new was he that even all debts and ob- obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they never existed. So basically, in our adoption, our old self deceased. And all our sinful debts and connections to the worldly flesh were made obsolete. God the Father forgave us of our sins and wiped clean our slate uh, of jud- pending judgment. And that's when God adopted us. And remember that God predestined to adopt us. He chose to adopt us according to his great love for us. The next blessing we see is in verse 6 to 8, the blessing through grace. Uh, Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, 
How glorious and praiseworthy is his amazing grace. By his amazing grace, we've been accepted in the beloved. In other words, we've been accepted in Christ. Because Jesus was completely accepted by uh, the Father. All his character, all his works, all his deeds, his whole life was acceptable to the Father. And because we're in Christ, that makes us acceptable by the Father. Because I said already, when God looks upon us, he won't see our sinful deeds. He'll just see his glorious Son. Which means that our acceptance by God is something that we haven't merited or earned. It is only because of our position in Christ. In essence, God has gift-wrapped to us the privileges of an adult son in his family, which he has done that we might be to the praise of him and the glory of his amazing, abundant grace, according to verse 6. In verse 7, we probably see one of the simplest but yet most beautiful uh, definitions of the gospel, where it says, in him we have redemption through his blood. And the idea of redemption, for those who may not know, redemption is to purchase back, to buy back uh, by costly means, or to liberate by payment. And redemption isn't something new to the New Testament, it's littered throughout the Old Testament as well. You've got examples of the, uh, in Exodus chapter 13, where the Israelite families would have to redeem their firstborn child, well, mainly firstborn son, because God said that after he um, let them out of the land of Egypt, he said that every firstborn son what you have shall be mine, and you have to redeem by a sacrifice of a lamb. Uh, in Leviticus, the children of Israel also had to redeem land. If a child of Israel lost the land as a possession, had to sell it because they were in debt, they were allowed to redeem it back to themselves. Or a family member of theirs was allowed to redeem it back to themselves, but obviously they had to pay a price for, to get that land back. Also in Leviticus, uh, was the allowance for redeeming a slave. The child of Israel had to become a slave because he was so much in debt that he had to sell himself. He could be redeemed by himself or by a family member, but we had to pay the costly price to redeem that person back so they may become free and no longer a slave. So what sort of redemption are we talking about here in verse 7? The redemption, what we receive here in verse 7, is the fact that when God created the earth, he created us in his image, which meant that we belong to God at creation. But yet when sin entered the world, it became no longer under God's law or under God's authority, but we came under sins. We became slaves of sin. And when we became slaves of sin, that sin priced a, put a price on our lives. That was death. So, God redeemed us. He paid that price which sin put on our lives by shedding the blood of his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. And by his blood spilled upon the cross and his death where he died upon that cross, God redeemed us. 
and then he forgave us our sins. As I read earlier in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God created us, he redeemed us, and he forgave us of our sins, of his pure, rich grace. I love what um, Spurgeon says about redemption. He says, Jesus does not redeem us by his sinless life or his moral example, but only by his death in our place, by his blood. Observe, it's not redemption through his power. It's not through his blood. It's not redemption through his love. It is through his blood. But talking about redemption, we can't ignore the issue of sin because sin needs to be dealt with in our lives for redemption to have any worth or value in our hearts. Because if you just got, if you're just looking for redemption, thinking that, yep, Jesus, we, we've been redeemed. Jesus paid the price. You know, he died on the cross. That's it. In that sense, redemption isn't going to be enough to save you because you've still got that sin in your hearts. You're not actually asking the Lord to forgive you of your sin and be washed and cleansed. After all, what has unrighteousness got to do with righteousness? We need our sins forgiven us to then fully appreciate and understand and acknowledge the full importance of that redemption work which Christ completed upon the cross. So in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of this grace. And this grace he made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. His amazing grace by which we are saved. And this grace which he bestowed upon us, he done it out of his wisdom and prudence. In other words, he wasn't foolish when he poured out his grace upon us. He wasn't quick thinking or doing a quick fix when he poured out his grace upon us. He was purposeful in giving out his grace. He knew what he was doing when he poured out his grace upon us. And after all, when he poured out his grace upon this world at the cross, it's what we had planned even before the foundation of the world. If you look in Revelation 13, verse 8, it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, who was slain from when? The foundation of the world. God purposely created man out of love and purposely poured his amazing grace upon the world at the cross. And Jesus died and paid the sins for you and I. What amazing, purposeful grace. We can only know this grace because of the next blessing, what we have. And that's the blessing through the mystery. As we see in verse 9 to 10, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. But in a dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So the mystery. What is the great mystery? This mystery is spoken of a few times in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus speaks of it in Mark 4, where he says, 
And he said to them, To you has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 7, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. In Colossians 1 27, To them God willed to make known what are the riches to the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is this mystery? It's a mystery that salvation is available to everyone, not only to the Jews, but to all those Gentiles. And if you're not a Jew, then you're Gentile. So this mystery is basically, you could sum up as a church age. It's the age of the church. But then, why is the church a mystery? Because if you look at all the Old Testament prophets, they saw the... um, Jesus Christ being offered and sacrificed. They saw him coming at the second coming and God uh, redeeming and judging the world. But yet the bit in the middle about the church, you don't actually see that in the uh, prophecies of the Old Testament saints, of the Old Testament prophets. So the age of the church was kind of hidden, but yet was revealed after Christ died, raised again and set into heaven, and especially when the day of Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit came down. That's when the church, day of the age of the church started, and that's when this mystery, which Paul uh, refers to, uh, started. And essentially, this mystery is summed up in what Paul said in Colossians. This mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because that's the age what we're living in, is where we've got Christ inside of us, who, our, who is our hope of glory. And we look forward to the day when he comes back to take us back and then we'll be in glory with him. And God wants us to know that this mystery, which was hidden according to his pleasure's will, um, was purposed and started before the foundation of the world even. And he purposed to reveal this mystery in us. So, the next blessing, what we see is in uh, verse 11, the blessing for inheritance. Verse 11 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So, for those who are called children of God, it means that Jesus Christ is no longer our judge, but the one in whom we have an inheritance. Because we are predestined for his inheritance according to God's purpose. You may be wondering, well, what is that inheritance? What inheritance do we have in Christ? The inheritance of eternal life. The inheritance of eternal life with God the Father in heaven. That is an inheritance. And not only that, but our inheritance of being co-heirs with Christ. An inheritance of that kingdom of God. God has purposed to reconcile everything back to himself. And once everything had been reconciled back to himself, he gave us an inheritance, which he done according to the counsel of his will. And that counsel would be in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Meaning the Father, Son, and Spirit 
were all in unity with each other when God purposed to reconcile everything back to himself, which meant that the Son, before the foundation of the world, knew that one day he would be upon that cross in that agony, in that pain, bleeding for us. Remember that the Holy Spirit knew that his job would be to come down here on earth to show man the wickedness of his heart. The Holy Spirit knew that he would be grieved and rejected by some men, but yet he knew that those who would respond, the chosen ones of God, and that he would then do a work in their hearts, conform them into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. And God the Father knew that this plan of redemption would give him all the glory that was due to him. Which brings us on to the next blessing, the blessing through worship. Verse 12, it's a short one. It says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And basically, verse 12 just tells us why we exist in the first place, why God created us. He created us and gave us the purpose in life to be the praise of his glory. God not only desires, but deserves our endless praise because he is God. And giving glory to God is probably the richest blessing that we have been given by God. And we can only worship God truly because of the next blessing, which is blessing through the Holy Spirit, because we worship him spirit and truth, as the word says. So verse 13, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. We started to trust in Jesus after we heard the word of truth. That word of truth is the gospel, the gospel of salvation. You may have heard the phrase, wherever you go, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And I'm not going to knock that saying. It is a good saying because it's based upon Matthew 5, verse 13, 16, where it talks about being light and salt of the world. But yet, at the same time, you need to actually preach the gospel with words because the gospel needs to be spoken. Because actions can only go so far. And in actual fact, your actions and your example isn't even enough for a person to be saved by because they need to know that they are a sinner. They need to know that they need to be saved from that sin. And they need to know that only Jesus can save them from their sin. And they need to know that Jesus accomplished all this upon the cross. And that's only something you can convey with words or language. So the gospel needs to be shared. Because upon hearing the gospel of salvation through Jesus and him alone, you are sealed. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So... I just want to briefly talk about what this would have meant to the Ephesians, the idea of a seal, um, just to give it a bit of clarity. So for the Ephesians, who lived in a trade epicenter of the world back then, um, would have had many goods coming from the east, going to the west. 
and merchants would purchase these goods to then send them on. But what the merchants would do is they would send out their servants to look at the merchandise, and the servants would take their master's seal and would put that seal on the merchandise, saying that this merchandise now belongs to my master. In the same way, we've been given that seal by the Holy Spirit, saying that we now belong to God the Father. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Not only does he convict us of our sins, not only does he equip us for living the life what God has called us to live, but the main thing is, is that he seals us. He gives us that assurance of salvation in that sense. Uh, listen to the quote from Mayer. First of all, he talks about sealing of a letter. He says, For sealing, there needed to be a softened wax, the imprint of the blood of face, and a steady pressure. What that spirit might press the face of our dear Lord on our softened hearts, there may keep it forevermore. And it just emphasizes the point that for us to be sealed by the Holy Spirit, our hearts need to be softened to receive that sealing of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is our guarantee, as it says in verse 14, our down payment uh, of our coming glory in heaven. Because nothing else will provide or is provided or nothing else is needed for us to be able to get into heaven. But just as Holy Spirit as our guarantee, that down payment, after we've been saved from our sins. And we have this guarantee until we are completely purchased by God when we are resurrected and glorified in him. And wrapping up, verse 14, it says, To the praise of his glory. How rich God has blessed us and blessed us so much that we just need to praise him and glorify him. Because praise him because he has blessed us by choosing him. Praise him because he has blessed us by predestined us for adoption into his family. Praise him because he has blessed us by accepting us. Praise him because he has blessed us by redeeming us. Praise him because he has blessed us by forgiving us our sins. Praise him because he has blessed us by making known to us the mystery of his will. Uh, Praise him because he has blessed us, because his grace which he has abounded towards us. Praise him because he has blessed us by giving us an inheritance. Praise him because he has blessed us by sealing us with the seal of the Holy Spirit. And praise him because he has given us the heart to worship and praise him. And let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. And so, Father, we just thank you that you have adopted us into your family. Thank you that you have chosen us and loved us and given yourself for us. We thank you for the many rich blessings you have blessed us with from the heavenly places. And we thank you that you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee and our hope. And we thank you that you have blessed us with ability to be able to worship your holy name. And may our lives just be a life of worship to you, to glorify you and honor you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.